you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to talk about the fragrance of Christ this morning. My family had the privilege this week of discovering that our septic tank needed to be pumped. I don't know if you've ever watched one of those things happen, but it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. <clears throat> one of the worst smells, and so I did a little research this week on uh, what are the worst smells ever, and number one was a rotting animal corpse. Rotten eggs, there's some other things that are on there. I don't know if you've ever driven down the road and suddenly you passed a dead skunk on the side of the road and you knew it immediately. And it blessed your family for the next few seconds or minutes just driving by. And then I looked up uh, also, what are the best smells that people love to smell the most? After it rains was one of the top ones. Can I get an amen to that? Chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven. Can I get a witness? Somebody. Amen. Fresh baked bread. Bacon frying. Amen. Fresh ground coffee. Cinnamon rolls. Fresh popcorn. A sea breeze. Apple pie. Burning wood, fresh cut grass, and lavender. Those of you that are into essential oils, lavender. Ephesians 5, verse 1. We're going to read this verse now, and then we're going to come back to it later, because I don't think we're going to appreciate it as much now. But let's read it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, here we go, as a fragrant aroma. Two words there, offering and sacrifice. They actually represent two different things, an offering was a willing gift of gratitude. It usually had no blood in it. It was not usually a dead animal. It was usually uh, something different. And it was, it was given out of cheerful gratitude to the Lord. Uh, it could, could be an animal. Uh, the word offering is used of Cain and Abel. God didn't command that they bring an offering, but out of the, their produce they brought an offering. As you know, Abel's heart was filled with, with sincere worship for the Lord. He's willingly bringing God his best. Cain, though, is giving God his second best. He's doing it reluctantly, not the right attitude. And the word fragrant is connected to God being pleased with the offering he, when he receives it. First time the word fragrant is used in Scripture is when Noah came off the ark He's overwhelmed that God saved him and his family. The ark, a picture of Christ, really, in the Old Testament. And when he gets off the ark in Genesis 8, it says, he offered a sacrifice of every clean animal to the Lord. And it says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said in response, I will never curse the earth again. Then God blessed Noah, made a covenant with him. 
It was a beautiful thing out of his gratefulness and humility and gratitude, knowing everyone else had perished because of sin, and God had spared Noah out of his own grace. In Leviticus 2, when God gives them the law, he talks about giving an offering. And a grain offering in Leviticus 2 was when they would pour frankincense, incense on the offering, and it says that it would be a fragrant, sweet smell to the Lord. People are, again, coming willingly, grateful for what God had done in their life. They're not being forced to do it. They want to do it. And then the word sacrifice here is a blood sacrifice of an animal, and it's usually connected for sin. And Leviticus talks about an offering of an animal that would be a spotless male lamb as a sacrifice to the Lord. It also said that would be a a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So with this in mind, Jesus offered himself. He was more grateful to the Father than you and I could ever experience. He loved the Father deeply, but he was not only an offering, but he was also a sacrifice to God, not for his own sins, but for ours. And it says, just as Christ loved you this way, what was his motivation? Deep, abiding, unconditional love, willing to lay down his life for us. And he's using that in verse 2 as an illustration of that you're a beloved child of God. Because he says, therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God your Father. And if you see families where the children are deeply loved by their parents and the children know that, the children want to grow up and be like those parents. And he's saying, as beloved children of your heavenly Father... He says, imitate your father, be like him. And this is in a a key verse in the book of Ephesians, because Ephesians is about identity in Christ, that when we come to know Christ, how does the Lord transform us? What does he do in us? And then it's about inheritance in Christ, what we have in him. The first three chapters of Ephesians are talking about all these wonderful things that when a person becomes a Christian happens in their life. And then he shifts gears, and for three chapters, he basically doesn't tell us to do anything. He just talks about who you are in him, how much he loves you, what Christ has done for you, what Jesus did for you, what you have, the inheritance you have in him. And then he shifts gears in the last three chapters, and he says, now, in light of this, let it change the way you think. Let it change the way you live. Let it change the way you speak represent now this God of love who has loved you with this everlasting love that you didn't deserve. And so you'll see this transition where he says in chapter 1, because you have been forgiven of all your sins. And chapter 4 says, now then you forgive everyone who sins against you. And he says, because you have been shown the light of the Lord, you were darkness, but now you are children of light. He says, now walk in the light. And be the light of the Lord. And right here in chapter 5, it's one of my favorite verses in Ephesians because he's saying, as someone who is beloved, your identity is now someone who is unconditionally agape loved by God. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He just chose to pour it out upon you through Jesus. 
He says, as someone who is loved, now you walk in love. You imitate your heavenly Father. And in the illustration of Jesus' offering as a fragrant offering to God. So I don't think, though, I really appreciate this verse unless I can look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 talks about my history in Christ. But when I started looking at Ephesians 2, I realized I can't fully appreciate Ephesians 2 unless I go back to John 11 and 12. And so I want us to go back to John 11 and 12 so that we can appreciate Ephesians 2 so that then we can really appreciate Ephesians 5. Are you with me? So with that in mind, John 11 and 12, talking about fragrant offerings, talking about offering to God, all of us will either be like Cain and withhold our whole hearts from God, only come when we're compelled, or we can be like Abel. Lord, out of love for you, out of gratefulness for you, I want to freely give. Now, think about it. Do you freely receive gifts when people don't freely give them? Ask your wife, husbands, if she really enjoys receiving something from you when she knows you're giving it reluctantly. And yet God looks at our hearts. He knows us in all circumstances. There are Christians who freely worship. You don't have to, Mark doesn't have to beg me to do it. I want to do it. There's those that freely give. There's those that freely serve. There's those that freely share their faith. They freely pray because they realize like the 10 lepers who were healed by Jesus, they want to be the one who comes back and says, you don't have to ask me to come back and say thanks. I don't want to do it. John 11, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and he loved Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't make any sense. Instead of running, because they wanted him, please come heal him. He's dying. You love him. This is one of your close friends, Jesus. Jesus waited. Jump down to verse 12. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover, because Jesus had said he was asleep. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 17, so when Jesus came and he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days, now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. You know Mary and Martha deeply loved Lazarus. They're asking, please come heal him. And now all these people are coming to comfort them because he was dead, and now four days later. And Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. 
Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had the faith to believe that Jesus could have healed him because she'd seen him heal other people. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I love this. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jump down to verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet, saying to him, she says the same thing Martha did, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Again, they're limited in their faith as to what they believe Jesus could do. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, open up the septic tank and let the community smell it. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. The rotting smell of a corpse. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone and held their noses. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that you may, they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, he specifically said Lazarus because it is believed that if Jesus had not been specific, then all the graves would have opened and all these resurrected people would have walked out of their graves. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Now, let me ask you a question. What did those wrappings smell like? You think they stunk? Oh, yeah. They were nasty. Jesus said to them, um, unbind him and let him go. Now, this event was so pivotal. The timing of the event was pivotal because all these dominoes start to fall after this event happens. They thought that a spirit may hover around a body for a couple of days after somebody died. Jesus waited. Now it's been four days. When he resurrected Lazarus, I mean, you want to talk about knocking it out of the park and shocking the world overwhelming, all these things begin to happen. The first one that happened is verse 45, salvations. 
Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, they came to comfort Mary. They didn't come to see Lazarus getting resurrected. And they saw what had, done, what had been done. They believed in Jesus. Evangelism explodes from Lazarus's story. Now, what did Lazarus do to earn this? Nothing. Did Lazarus ask for this? No. Jesus chose in grace and mercy and in love to give something that was undeserved. The next thing that happened is a conspiracy because some of the people in verse 46 went and told the Pharisees what happened. And the Pharisees who were skeptics of the entire time of Jesus' miracles and probably the feeding of the 5,000 that Mike talked about a few minutes ago, they're skeptical of everything. When they now hear that Jesus resurrected somebody from the grave, instead of falling on their knees and repenting, they harden their hearts and they scheme, how can we kill Jesus? Because now we're going to lose our uh, the control that we have in this area, our spiritual dominance and our, our traditions. And if you read down through those following verses, but jump down to verse 53, but it says, from that day on, they planned to kill Jesus. Was this a part of God's plan? Absolutely. The timing of this was perfect. The sinfulness of man does not thwart the will and the plans of God. In fact, he counts on it. This key event actually fit in to God's epic plan for all eternity for Jesus to die for the sins of the world. So Lazarus' testimony and what happened with Lazarus fits into God's epic plan. The next thing that happens, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus had left for a little while and he comes back. So the last time Mary had been around Jesus... Her deeply loved brother was resurrected, went from sorrow to joy. Now Jesus shows up at their house, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, six days before the Passover, when Jesus is going to be crucified, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. He's eating with Jesus. I love this. So Lazarus is seated with Jesus, eating at the table. Mary, overwhelmed. She already loved Jesus. She would sit at his feet. She cared deeply about him. Overwhelmed at what he had done for her and her family. Verse 3, she took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Smell number two. Smell number one, a rotting corpse. Lazarus, associated with Lazarus. Smell number two, he's sitting right there eating with us, clean. And now she's overwhelmed. Some believe that spikenard is actually the same as lavender today. There's a debate about that, but it could be true. So why did Mary do this? Overwhelmed, the context for what Jesus has done. And think of this fragrance for a minute, this wonderful fragrance that fills the air, fills the whole house. But let me ask you a question. Did everyone enjoy that fragrance? No. Judas, verse 4, one of his disciples was intending to betray Jesus. He said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The smell of Jesus, the offering to God, and yet she got to be a part of anointing Jesus with her perfume. I found out that vultures delight so much in rotting smells that they will reject things that are treated with fragrant perfume or myrrh. Judas is a vulture in this situation. He can't delight in her worship. He can't delight in the sacrifice for Christ. He can't delight in what God has done. He's only absorbed in what he's thinking about himself. Verse 9, the large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Okay, let's recap. Lazarus' sickness resulted in his death. Number two, I don't know how to put it pleasantly, but he became a dead, rotting, stinky corpse. But Jesus shows up out of love. Jesus was fully aware of Lazarus' condition the entire time, and the suffering associated with him moved him deeply. But Lazarus was made alive and raised to life through the power of Christ. He did not deserve it, but out of grace, Jesus gives it to him. Lazarus' resurrection also greatly glorified God and revealed the power of Christ over death, hell, in the grave, really. Lazarus was still bound, though, with old, rotting clothing that needed to be removed. Lazarus was later seated with Christ at the table. And his unique testimony, what did it do for non-believers? It brought many non-believers to Christ. What did it do for believers? It prompted them to worship and praise God, his story. But people rejected Lazarus. Even people wanted to kill him because those who rejected Jesus wanted to reject him. You with me? Now we can turn to Ephesians 2. Because Lazarus' story is my story. And Lazarus' story is your story if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Ephesians 2 Verses 1 through 10. But he's not talking about physically here. He's talking about spiritually. And Paul says, let me share with you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your testimony. Let me give you the meta-epic view. You were dead, a rotting corpse in your uh, trespasses and sins. You say, no, I wasn't. It's one thing that goes on in ministry behind the scenes is when ministers have to deal with the best of the best. It's always exciting, but we also have to deal with the worst of the worst. When you have a, a wife broken down in front of you saying, my husband has left me or abandoned me or cheated on me. When you have somebody saying, you know, a, a, somebody robbed from me or stole from me or somebody killed themselves or killed somebody I know. When you're comforting family members. But you know what? At the end of the day, a lot of times we come back to saying sin stinks. It really stinks. When you see the tears and you see the hurt. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Have you ever been betrayed? You don't have to raise your hand <laughs> or point to anybody. 
Didn't it stink? Have you ever been lied to? Didn't it stink? Have you ever been around bitter, angry people? Doesn't it stink? Do you know someone who, because of their sexual morality, you experience the stench and the consequences of that? We could go on and on. Hatred, racism, uh, deceit, anger, selfishness. We could go on and on. And Scripture says, though, that not only do other people commit that, but that we in our hearts are this way against God. And you know what? Our sin stinks to other people. Your sin stinks to the people around you. I don't know how to put this pleasantly, but Scripture communicates that, and it's true. You have felt it, and other people have felt it. But more than that, our sin stinks to God. The rotting corpse of our sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. This world is constantly sinning and trying to lead people to sin. If you follow the course of this world, you're going to live a life of sin. According to the prince of the power of the air, Satan does influence people. Even as he planted the idea in Judas's heart to betray Jesus, Satan will plant ideas in your heart to do the opposite from what God wants you to do. But it's not just the world, it's not just the devil, but the next thing says, as the spirit that down works in the sons of disobedience, he says, and we too, verse 3, also formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, our own lust, our own greed, our own pride inside of us. Jesus said, out of the heart of man in Matthew 15, the things that defilest, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slandering, that comes out of our own heart. Have you ever just randomly had a very violent thought pop in your head? A very evil, wicked, sexual thought pop in your head? A very deceitful thought? A very hateful thought? A very bitter thought pop in your head? Could it come from the devil? Yes, but it can come out of your own heart. Jesus said, we're dead in our sins. The Bible says deceitful above all things is the human heart, desperately sick. And the Lord searches our hearts. Proverbs 28 said, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were by nature children of wrath. We deserve God's wrath, even as we have hoped for God's wrath for people who've sinned against us. We deserve God's wrath. But God, verse 4. But Jesus showed up on the scene. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. You say, what's God's motive for what he does? Look at verse 4, rich in mercy, great in love. That's what's motivating him for what he does in our lives. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were wrapped up in the cloths, the garments, the rotting cloths of our own sinfulness. Jesus made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, just like Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, and raised us up with him, verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It wasn't at a table on earth. He's put us in a position as beloved children in the heavenly places, a rightful eternal place in Christ, so that in ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He gives us salvation for free to shine how kind he is as a loving God towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. Lazarus didn't deserve it and you don't deserve it. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God didn't just resurrect Lazarus. He didn't just clean him up. But then Jesus used his testimony and used his life to be a witness to the lost, to draw the lost to salvation, to be a, a powerful inspiration and encouragement to believers, to lead them to worship God, to cause his sister to freely, just out of gratefulness, to want to pour ointment on Jesus' feet. Lazarus' life became a powerful, a unique story to do a unique work to then bring glory to God. So my story and your story is this story. In Christ, God has made us alive, just like Lazarus, to show his kindness towards us. He raised us up. He's given us a gift of salvation, and then he gifted us to be able to serve him with our lives. We're his unique workmanship. So I want you to think about this. Like Lazarus, you and I were spiritually sick in our sins. But God's word says this sickness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified. And even as the disciples didn't realize the gravity of Lazarus' condition, the people of this world don't realize the gravity of their true spiritual condition. But God is fully aware. He's watched us. He's heard every word we've said. He's known every wicked thought. He's searched and known our hearts. He's aware of the stinking, rotting corpse of our condition. And Jesus, aware of the consequences of our sin and the suffering that our sin causes, He's not a God of a calloused, hard heart, but with a tender heart, he allows himself to be moved with compassion for us, and he calls us out of the grave. And when you and I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we get honest about our rotting condition, and we call upon Jesus to be saved, the Bible says we're made alive together with Christ. And even as Lazarus' story was timed by God to fit into the meta story, the epic story, to carry out the greater eternal will of the gospel, so your life story is too. God chose when you would be born. God chose where you would live. God chose who your parents would be. God chose what your gender would be. God chose what your spiritual gift would be. God chose uh, the, the, the places where you would live. God knew ahead of time. And he sees the brokenness and the hurt of sin that you've experienced from other people and that you've experienced yourself in your life. And he's not a calloused, hard-hearted God. He's fully aware and he cares. And because of that, he has sent you the gospel. John 11 says, The man who died and came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, wrapped around his face, Jesus said, even though Lazarus was alive, unbind him and let him go. So what would you think about Lazarus if we got to John 12 and you find out he was like still wearing the rotting clothes? He's like, you know, I'm kind of fond of these clothes. <laughs> you know, a great moment in my life happened while I was wearing these clothes. So I've kept on the head wrappings so that when I speak, 
You know, there's always bad breath through the rotting clothes coming out of my mouth. And I keep my hands bound by the rotting clothes just to remind me so that when you see me, I still am enslaved by my hands being bound. And my feet are still bound to limit where I can go and what I do just because I'm kind of fond of these rotting clothes. And Ephesians 2 is followed by Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 says, if you turn to Ephesians 4 verse 17, in light of what Jesus has done for us, he says, therefore, I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles or lost people walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Don't live like a lost person anymore, he's saying, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, they're hard-hearted. They've given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness, greediness. He says, you've not learned this from Christ. Indeed, if you've heard him and have been taught by him, the truth is in Jesus. He says, put off. This is a key verse, verse 22. This is a verse referring to throwing off old rotting clothes. He says, put off the old man concerning the former conduct, the way you used to live, which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You're like, well, what does that mean, putting off and putting on? Then the rest of these verses in chapter 4 and verse 5 walk through the rotting things in our lives that we hold on to, that we need to throw off and replace them with the new, clean garments of Christ. And let me just list a few of these. He talks about putting off sexuality that's immoral and putting on purity. He talks about putting off greed and putting on gratefulness. He talks about putting off lust. He talks about putting off falsehood and lies and putting on truth spoken in love. He talks about quit stealing in chapter 4 and start working instead. He talks about putting off toxic speech. Get the cursing and the profanity and the slander and the, the dirty jokes and the foolishness coming out of your mouth. He says, get, throw that off like an old rotting garment. And he says, put on encouraging words that build people up. Thanksgiving, showing appreciation for other people. Put on truth, put on love. He talks about put on praise towards God. Let the words of your mouth represent someone who's beloved by God, a beloved child. He says, put off bitterness and anger. Quit holding back forgiveness. That stinks to God. Your bitterness and unforgiveness is rotting in the nostrils of God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. You don't need to hold on to that anymore. Throw that off, he says in Ephesians 4, and put on kindness and forgiveness. Put off covetousness. Quit trying to get what other people have. Put on gratefulness. He says put off drunkenness and put, off, put on being filled with God's Spirit. Let that be your satisfaction. Because what happens when the world hears about scandals in the church? What happens when you hear about ministers falling, having affairs? What happens when you hear about that Christian businessman cheated me? What happens when you hear Christians running one another down or having foul mouths? What does the world, does it like Lazarus, draw them to want to believe in Jesus? 
No, it's the rotting corpse of who we used to be apart from Christ. And in Ephesians 4, he's saying, throw it off. It's time to throw it off. God wants your life to be a fragrant aroma that when people hear your words, the fragrance of Christ they sense when they're around you, the gratefulness of Christ, the love of Christ, because all sin is contrary to love. It's contrary to love towards God, and it's contrary to love towards other people. So, with that in mind, Ephesians 5, we get back to this verse again. Therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of God, your Father. Sin, what is sin? Is sin this dark ball that, of, of ugliness that crawls around and jumps on us? No. Sin is ungodliness. It is a rejection of who God is. Every time we're sinning, we're rejecting the character of God. And he's saying, as beloved children, copy the character of God. Be like God. And he starts with love. Walk in love. As Christ has loved you, walk in love. Walk in love towards your spouse. Walk in love towards your coworkers. Walk in love with what you say. Walk in love with how you serve. Walk in love in how you praise. Walk in love in how you give. Walk in love in how you worship. Be like your heavenly Father. Because then your life, like Mary, becomes a fragrant offering of worship to God. And it draws the lost to salvation. Because they see you look like your Father. You speak like your Heavenly Father. You have an attitude like your Heavenly Father. And it makes them want to know your Heavenly Father. I want to conclude with this verse. 2 Corinthians 2 says this. And let me say this. When Roman soldiers would win in a battle and they had their defeated enemies, they would chain those enemies. And before they killed them, they'd parade them through the streets. And as they paraded those conquered and defeated foes through the streets, before they killed them, the Roman priests would burn incense of the parade so that people would smell the victory. And to the triumphant soldiers and to the Roman citizens, that smell was the smell of victory and triumph. But to the defeated foes, that smell was the smell of death and defeat because they were on their way to be killed. 2 Corinthians 2 says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us as Christians in triumph in Christ Jesus. We're overcomers in him and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Everywhere we go, there should be an aroma, a fragrance of Christ. When people are around you at home, when nobody else is watching, there ought to be a fragrance of Christ in how you speak to the people in your home and how you treat them. He says, for we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. But among those who are perishing, to the one aroma from death to death, and the other aroma from life to life. To Judas, that smell was an aroma of death, but to everyone else, they enjoyed the worship of it. 
you and I, as we represent the gospel everywhere we go, there will be people who hate us and reject us like Cain hated Abel because we are worshiping the Lord. We should be ready for that. We shouldn't be shocked by that. People hate, will hate believers without cause because you're walking around representing the love and the light of God. But you have been called to this. You have been saved for this. This is the absolute best way to live. And we, because we're God's workmanship in creating Christ Jesus, like Lazarus, when I just see all these people coming to Christ, they just wanted to see him, a living testimony. All these people coming to Christ after having seen him. When people meet you and see you, there ought to be so many more people that are in heaven as a result of the fragrance of Christ in your life. And there ought to be believers everywhere you go that are encouraged and led to worship God with an offering of their lives because they see how you're offering your life to him. Let's pray together. What has God said to you this morning through his word? What is he saying to you about your life either being a fragrant aroma, pleasing to him, or are you still carrying around the rotting garments of the old life? Because it's just holding you back. And as Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. This morning, today is the day of salvation, and today is the day where we say, Lord, I'm letting go of these rotting garments of my past. I'm letting go of these things that do not represent the character of my Heavenly Father, that don't represent love. I'm taking these things off, and I'm not going back to them. I'm throwing them off, and I'm going to put on love and truth and kindness and grace and forgiveness. Would you right now offer yourself, present yourself as a living sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship to him? Say, Lord, here is my body. Here is my life. I want my life to be a sweet aroma to God. If you're here this morning and this is all new to you or you know that you have never given your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to know you can't save yourself even as Lazarus couldn't climb out of that grave on his own. But Jesus loves you he created you. He laid down his life 
as a sacrifice for your sins. And this morning, the command of Scripture is to repent. It's to be honest with God. Say, Lord, I, I'm broken. I'm lost. My life is rotting. And I come to you, Jesus. And I say, save me. Resurrect me. Change me. Forgive me. Take my life. And do something with it. If that's where you are, I want you to know God hears the sincere, humble prayer. And he saves us when we call upon him to be saved. As a believer, you may be broken by your own sin. And you're hurting this morning. And I want you to know the Lord has a tender heart for you. His love doesn't come and go based upon your behavior. It's unconditional. You can take your situation and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse and to heal. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we just acknowledge we're not people that need medicine because we're sick. We're dead apart from you. And we thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus to make us alive in Christ. Lord, I pray we wouldn't just receive salvation, but Lord, I pray we as beloved children would throw off the old life and put on the new life in Christ and live out who we are in you. Lord, make this church a representation of the gospel to Albany and to the nations. Make the believers in this room, Lord, a fragrance of Christ offering to you. Lord, may we give freely. May we pray freely. May we love freely. May we not come reluctantly, Lord, but may we give and lay down our lives for the cause of Christ and the gospel. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Every person uniquely designed by you and saved to do specific good works. Lord, help us to do those good works. Free us up from other things so that we can be faithful to those good works. And Lord, I, I pray you would receive all the honor, all the praise, and the world would know that you are the living, true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.